Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by Judy Ansel, who produces the Heartland Labor Forum and coordinates a team of volunteers who do the show. She is a labor educator, recently retired from the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and prides herself on teaching people to question authority, especially at work, and stand up for their rights. Judy is also active in Missouri Jobs with Justice and the Cross Border Network. Thanks for joining us, Judy. Well, thank you very much. How are you holding up during the pandemic? Oh, it's getting a little old, I'd say. I agree. Um, but I'm I'm super busy. I, uh, I you know, I, I doing radio. You can do radio from anywhere. Uh, the only thing you can't do is uh, very well is radio with a mask on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but we properly socially distance ourselves. Um, you know, we've been doing lots of events on Zoom. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I have a dog and I walk my dog so I get my exercise. Right on. <laughs> and are you in Kansas City then, Judy? I live in Kansas City, Kansas. Okay. Uh, which is the smaller of the two Kansas cities just so we can confuse everybody. Right. and uh, <laughs> Including uh, our president. <laughs> oh, well, that's who, easy. <laughs> who didn't. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he didn't know which one was which. <laughs> well, a lot of people don't. Actually, it was a real estate scam uh, back in the 1880s uh, when they incorporated Kansas City, Kansas. They decided to call it Kansas City so that people might buy property here thinking that they were buying property in Kansas City, Missouri. Ah. That's the story I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> How often and where do you do your uh, radio program? Well, it's once a week for an hour, and it's on KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio, uh, which is a pretty powerful station. We have 100,000 watts. So we reach all the way to Topeka. What do you know? Wow. <laughs> and uh, you know, we're a community radio station really dedicated to the whole idea that we should reflect the culture, the politics, the um, interests of the underserved communities, underserved by the mainstream media. How long have you been doing the program for? Oh, since 1989. Oh, wow. Same same yeah. station. Same station, same program since April 1st, April Fool's Day, 1989. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's been, I mean, we've had different volunteers. We've had a whole series of people come and go. Uh, I think I'm, I guess I'm the only one who's lasted that long. Uh, but some of our v volunteers that we trained actually went on to host other shows. What, what got you into doing the radio program? Were you, were you teaching at the time? I had just gotten my job as a labor educator at uh, the university. And um, the president of the local labor council, the AFL-CIO, asked me out to lunch and I little did I realize that he was actually going to recruit me to do a thankless task. But anyway, he, he said that uh, the station had just gone on the air the, the year before and the IBEW had wired the station and um, in payment for their volunteer work, they were offered a, sh a labor show. And so this guy uh, decided that probably I would be a good candidate to help start the show. And then uh, uh, several other people were recruited from area unions, a uh, UAW guy and um, a guy from the government employees and um, several others, uh, carpenters, millwrights. We had a variety of people and we started the show how, and it's been going ever since. <laughs> how? What got you into doing labor studies? Did you come, let's back up a little bit, 
why don't you tell us a little bit about your personal background, how you got into, did you come from a family of union organizers? No, although my grandfather was in a union, um, he was an immigrant and, and uh, he, he was an electrician. Um, but uh, my, uh, no, my actually come from a, a middle-class family. My father was a lawyer. Uh, I was raised as, uh, you know, believing in uh, the Democratic Party and liberalism and, and uh, you know, all of those things. And then I became an activist actually during the civil rights movement. Uh, and, um, and then in college, uh, I became a, actually a, an activist for women's rights. Uh, because when I went to college, uh, this was in the 60s, and um, uh, the restrictions on women students just outraged me. Uh, I, I guess I have a strong ability to uh, get outraged at things that are just manifestly unfair. And I was outraged by the fact that I had to be in at 10 o'clock at night uh, to my dorm, and none of the guys did. They had no hours at all. Those were the rules at the university. Those were the rules at the time. Oh, my and, God. Uh, what university, was, if you don't mind me asking, Judy? Stanford. Okay. And and it was called in loco parentes, meaning the university takes the role of the parent. And so I immediately got myself on the social regulations committee, which set the social regulations in. And we demanded a meeting with the president of the university because I wasn't the only one who thought this was kind of wrong. And so the president of the university, a guy named Wallace Sterling, if you can believe it, uh, sat down with us and uh, we asked him why we had rules only for women. And, and he told me that his father, um, that my father had given him the right to do that. And I said, well, never mind. My dad doesn't care. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, turned out that my father hadn't given him the right. And he was just, you know, it was just BS. But uh, anyway, um, we started organizing. Um, We exposed the corruption of their system. Uh, It only took a year to bring down those social regulations. And so I had a great lesson in activism. Uh, out of that experience. Uh, then we fought for the right for women to live off campus because we had to live on campus and men could move off campus after their first year. So Jesus. by my senior year, by my senior year, we won that and got the right to uh, move off campus. And at the same time, you know, it was Vietnam War. Right. Uh, there was anti-war marches going on. We uh, went to the Oakland draft board sit-ins. And so by the time I got out of school, I was um, an activist and a little seasoned at that. And uh, so anyway, I ended up going on to um, get a a master's in history and joined my first union as an adjunct in the in the community colleges in California Um, and uh, uh, was very thankful to be able to be uh, 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 in a union because this was the beginning of the whole adjunct thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember a dean of uh, students at one college who told me he would hire me to teach one class, uh, but not a full-time job. He said, come back in 20 years, we're full up. And that was really discouraging for somebody who thought that, you know, I could find a full-time job and and get some benefits and and have a stable life. And I ended up teaching at at one point at five different colleges in the Bay Area, Um, you know, one class at a time. Uh, I think one gave me two classes. And I was running myself ragged. So uh, I, uh, and then I, I, I got a job as a union organizer. 
um, for the teachers union organizing community college faculty. It was just the beginning of real organizing that was going on in the uh, community colleges in California. Um, so I went from there to organizing an electronics plant uh, to actually moving to Kansas City where I've lived since 1978 um, and uh, working, uh, I, I worked in factories for about seven years uh, and really learned it from the bottom up. So shop steward, um, organizer, um, I was in the Steelworkers Union and, um, and so that kind of gave me the training I needed. I love teaching. And uh, so it gave me the training I needed to become a labor educator. That's challenging, not just as a worker, but now you're a woman working in these factories. Um, oh, yeah. What yeah. in the hell was that experience like uh, as a woman? You know, you're coming from the Bay Area. You're back in Kansas City. You're you know, a little working. more conservative here, right? Yeah, you know, that's yeah. a big change. Yeah, except that, um, you know, this. OK, so this was in the late 70s. Uh, it was before Reagan and uh, the union, the steel workers that, had, that I belonged to actually had a, a fairly militant history. Uh, they had had strikes. They had, um, they understood solidarity. And, um, and so, you know, like I, I learned a lot from those guys and it was mostly guys. There were very few women in that plant. Uh, I, I went, I, I took a night course to learn how to run lathes. And so I, I bid up on a, a job. I started as an assembler and I bid up on a job. This was a pump plant, um, actually made, uh, machining parts on lathes. And, um, I actually really liked that, liked that, especially when I got a job doing one of a kind off a of blueprint and stuff like that. But the pressure, it was, this was as we went into the eighties and recessions, the pressure to produce became really intense and um, the, uh, the uh, management became really nasty. Uh, and so, um, the, you know, and, and the, un the union had to figure out strategies for fighting back. Um, my personal experience was that one of the most uh, interesting, well, a couple of really interesting things happened to me as a woman, I bid on a job that uh, was a little more skilled and um, somebody else bid on that job and uh, he got it even though he had less seniority than me and the union contract was, you know, job bids were ruled by seniority and I should have gotten that job and they said that I didn't have the strength to do the job. So the only requirements for the job were that you knew how to read a micrometer, which is a, a measuring device. Um, not that you had, you know, like big muscles or anything like right. that. And so it was really interesting because my union president, who was a very good guy, came over and he said, uh, this is a violation of the contract. Do you want to file a grievance? And I said, yeah. And, um, and then every guy in the shop had to come by and tell me whether or not he thought I could do the job. I was like, <laughs> you know, this is really unprecedented, I guess. Anyway, management just went totally out of its way to deny me the job. They marched me over to that machine. They had a whole line of guys standing there with their arms crossed like this, watching as they told me to chuck in a part and uh, tighten it up. And uh, uh, and then they had their setup guy come over and test it and, you know, tell them whether or not it was tight enough. Well, you know, and 
I don't know if you know about machining, but when you, uh, in on a lathe, you use something called a cheater bar, which is a lever. It's an extension you stick in order to be able to get more leverage. They hid the cheater bar, you know, so I had to ask for it. So, you, you know, you go through all that kind of BS and you get tough. Yeah. And you learn how to talk back. And we won. <laughs> you know, right uh, it took a long time, but we won. You know, and I really appreciated my union president for doing that. I, you know, if it had been a, a non-union shop, that never would have happened. When I worked in an electronics plant, which was non-union, it was, um, to, you know, a totally different situation. I mean, they um, they really intimidated you and they lied to you and they harassed you and all of those kinds of things. So I got a lot of lessons on how to fight back, um, you know, how, how to talk to people and and so on and so forth there was another situation uh where um i was working the first numerically controlled machine that they had in that shop it was a computerized machine and um it was a it, it was a difficult machine because it kept going out of adjustment so it was really hard to make the quota and there was this young man younger than me i was in my 30s he was in his 20s uh named dennis who was working the night shift and I was working the day shift and he would leave the machine a mess. He wouldn't shovel out the chips from the, from the metal that he was cutting. He wouldn't uh, change the coolant. Uh, and he would leave it a mess because he was trying to really impress the bosses with high production so that somehow they'd make him a manager or something. Who knows? I don't know. Um, anyway, I, after weeks of this, I, uh, I came in one morning, it was a mess, and I said to him, hey, you need to slow down and, and leave the machine in decent, decent shape. He went immediately to management, and the next thing I knew, I was fired for inciting a strike. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're kidding. You know, you really? <laughs> anyway, we filed. Um, I was at that point a steward, and so we filed unfair labor practice charges and went to the NLRB, and um, we won. And what was really interesting to me, I think I was off for two or three weeks. I think probably three weeks I was off. And when I came back to work, Den uh, Dennis, the guy was gone. He had been so frozen out by my fellow workers, and I don't know what they said to him, but he was gone. You know, so no management role for him. You know, he right. learned what happens when you screw somebody like that. And uh, so that was a real, you know, lesson too. I really appreciated that place. How long, now this is through the Reagan era? Because I know you said that you started. This was, yeah, this was actually, I, I worked in that place from 78 to 84. Okay. Had a baby while I was there. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, had had to figure out how to breastfeed in a filthy bathroom and all sorts of stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Those are, uh, I can't imagine that, obviously. Well, you know, that's, you You make, you make do, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but at the same time, I, I, I was really missing teaching. And so when, um, uh, so I decided uh, to quit and go back to teaching, even though I was an adjunct again, because there were no full-time, there were still no full-time jobs. Right. And I, I taught history. You know, it's like the last of, you know, the, the job opportunities, right. unfortunately. I see you have a lot of books on the wall, so I don't, I, I don't know if you have any history books. Oh, yeah. Uh, labor yeah. history is fascinating. Anyway, so I went back to teaching at uh, three different colleges in the Kansas City area, 
one four-year college, two, um, at, uh, two uh, community colleges, and uh, got blackballed by one of them because I was too militant, a, a feminist, uh, when I applied for a job. I mean, I should have I should have sued him, but then I never would have gotten a job at that. It was a community college system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to pick your battles and figure out which ones you can win and not. And not. Anyway, eventually what happened was that I met the guy who was directing the labor education program, and he asked me to start a research service. So I started learning how to do business research. And um, I um, investigated companies for unions. Uh, for purposes of organizing and bargaining, which was really fun. I really liked, you know, sort of finding the dirt and, uh, and, and, and helping them either decide that they should or should not organize a place, depending on, you know, whether or not it could even afford a contract, but also, you know, what it could, what it could demand uh, in the bargaining table. And I specialized in like privately owned smaller companies, a lot in the construction industry. Uh, which you really have to do a lot of digging. And, th- and that, too, I learned a tremendous amount of how to do that, how to analyze their financial statements and stuff like that. And then um, the job as director of, of the program opened up, and I applied for it, and I got it. And I did that then for 29 years. And that was starting in what year, Judy? That was starting in, eight, in 88. 88. Wow, so you've been just until a few years ago. Yeah, I retired uh, uh, two years ago. Excellent. Excellent. And was the... Were you happy to be done at that point? Or are you kind of ready to to step away? I from- was, yeah, I actually wanted to retire earlier, but I didn't because I knew they were going to can the program, and and that's what happened. They used the excuse in Missouri we had this big right to work fight. Same here uh, in Indiana. Yeah, yeah. and um, right around the same time. Yep. Um, and we actually we won, and uh, labor was just completely enmeshed in fighting the right to work. It, we got it on the ballot. So it became a referendum to repeal a right to work law that had been passed by the legislature. And uh, so they canned the program right in the middle of that fight. And I knew uh, there was no way that labor was going to get the energy to take on that fight as well as as the right to work fight. And so I just simply bowed out, yeah. basically. I still do some labor education with unions around the country, but you know, not so much. It's something that's sorely needed here in our region in Northwest Indiana, where I live, we are broadcasting from Michigan city, Indiana, which is right on the South shore of Lake Michigan, about 20 miles East of Gary and about 45 miles East of Chicago. Well, Indiana had a a large uh, labor education program for years. Oh, did they? Yeah. Oh yeah. I think it still does, uh, but they used to have, you know, they had a campus in Gary and they had a campus in, um, Fort Wayne, I think. Right. Indianapolis, Kalamazoo. No, that's Michigan. Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, you're Kokomo. right, though. You're Kokomo. absolutely right. Yeah, Kokomo, uh, Fort Wayne, yeah. Gary. Yeah, the yeah. the campuses still exist, but there's definitely not a labor program really? at those satellite campuses. No. Yeah. What a uh, shame. Because it used to be a really good program. Yeah. So it, you know, it's part of the whole right wing attack on labor that has occurred. Labor education has really been. Uh, under attack in various places. It still survives in the states that have very large union movements. Uh, but even, you know, in Michigan, they dismantled uh, and, and cut back on, on the labor education programs. Can you talk about how crucial the program was to aiding organizing efforts? Well, actually, 
We didn't do a lot of training for organizing. Um, the AFL-CIO pretty much, you know, handled organizer training. Uh, we did do some organizer training for small small locals who didn't uh, uh, he didn't have those kinds of services. But what the program was really important for was uh, shop steward training, um, bargaining training. Okay. We did arbitration. Uh, training for arbitration, and we trained university students to go into the labor movement. Uh, so we, you know, it sort of had this hybrid quality of both being a service to the, the local unions, especially smaller local unions that didn't get any kind of servicing from their international unions, and um, and then you know training people to become activists and and organizers or people worked in nonprofits and a variety of things that people went on to do, went through. We had a certificate program in labor studies. It wasn't a major, but it gave you a, a really good background to go get a job in the labor movement. We It seems here that it would benefit the unions greatly in, in Northwest Indiana if we at least had institutions, maybe that weren't providing even as detailed a training as what you're talking about, but at least doing some of that opposition research you know, researching what's happening in the labor markets, what's happening with these companies, which ones are more, um, you know, which ones should we focus on trying to organize unorganized workers, which ones make more sense to do that, that it just doesn't exist. And well, yeah, it, uh, most national unions have have or had research departments, mm -hmm. that if you ask them, they would do that kind of that kind of uh, investigation for you. Um, most unions, when they go into bargaining, can ask their national union's uh, research department for information about the company, but it isn't very much in-depth at all, and it doesn't train people themselves to do that kind of to do that kind of research, which is, I think, really important. I know, you know, I know some really crack organizers who can do their own research, and you know, know how to investigate a company, and that's really important to do. But you know this. This the thing is this that uh, unions, as a whole, not everyone, gave up on labor education back in the nineties. Um, the AFL-CIO uh, uh, eliminated its education department in the late nineties, and that sent a message to a lot of other unions that did the same thing, and they stopped. One of the reasons the labor movement is in such sorry shape in this country is because they really stopped educating their members. Uh, it's really rare for a, a union member to get any kind of labor education. Uh, they train their stewards in how to handle grievances, but they don't, they don't train anybody in how to build a militant, successful union that is participative and really can make a difference. And, you know, I mean, what I've observed, and, you know, there are clearly exceptions to this, but what I've observed as a general rule is that most unions go through the motions. They, um, you know, they, they take care of their legal obligations under the National Labor Relations Act, but they do not have any um, real strategy for how to win power. Oh, <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. I'm just living where we live in Northwest Indiana, which is one of the last union strongholds in the state outside right. of Indianapolis. I have to laugh because this is like the ongoing frustration is we, 
how do I put this? So I come from a heavy union family. All my, my grandparents come from former Yugoslavia and Italy. They joined the USW. My great grandfather was in uh, the Memorial Day Massacre, 1937, on the south side of Chicago, with my grandfather as a young child. Wow, um, wow that's great. My of- uncle was a student there, and he he missed the massacre because he was sick that day. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Maybe lucky. No, lucky for him. Yeah. yeah. But so, you know, I come from strong, strong union family. Everybody in the USW, aunts, uncles, cousins, or the UAW. My dad was a union iron worker. Um, My brother and I were like the first next generation that didn't join the unions. My my brother's full-time. He's in the military uh, and and does other work. Um, And and I'm not in a union. And it's, it's so fascinating and frustrating to me to come from such a heavy union background and yet, as an activist, as I came home from Iraq in 2006 and joined the anti-war movement, since then, you know, working with an in, uh, anti-war movement, environmental movement, Black Lives Matter, different groups, Occupy, community efforts, I feel so alienated from the labor movement. As someone who comes from a family of labor, like very strong roots in the labor movement, and I feel so alienated from organized labor, and that's not through... Uh, like non-effort. I mean, we've put out effort to try and reach out to folks in the USW. The leadership seems to be the biggest problem with a lot of these locals that, in fact, there are rank and file members who are very upset with their union leadership, who also understand that the Republicans are terrible downstate, but who just remain disorganized. They just don't know how to organize within their union. Um, So anyway, it's not even really a question, but just more of a statement so you know a little bit about my background. No, I, yeah. And and that, you know, that what you've described is what I've observed uh, around here, too. You know, there's just uh, the the leadership of our unions is. um, I don't know, they just have no vision and they they don't have a hunger to change. They're afraid of their rank and file. They're afraid of educating them because they'll run against them for office. Yep. And so they're biding time. And, and you know, and, and granted, a lot of them face real challenges. I mean, just running a union these days with all of the legal restrictions and regulatory uh, demands, as well as, you know, like empo- employers who are out to squeeze every nickel out of everybody that's a tough job. It's a really tough job. And they simply don't have time to think about, well, how could we do things different? How could we restructure? How do we get more people involved? You know, when you say to them, you need to have more participation in your union, if you're going to build more union strength, and they say, I don't have time. Right. You know, because the more people I have participating, uh, the more work it's going to be for me. And, 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 and it's, it's, it's been very frustrating, I have to say, uh, to, to deal with that. I, my faith is in the younger people because I see a lot of younger people who are uh, militant, who really want, do want to make changes and, and do things differently, have a different sense of justice and a, a really different attitude about uh, both uh, people of color and women. And, and uh, you know, I'm just hoping that they stick it out enough to become leaders. Otherwise, the labor movement's going to die. 
Well, we don't have anything to defend. I mean, one of the things I say to, to some of the older folks that I speak with about, you know, I'm 36, so I now feel old and no longer can I be trusted by the younger <laughs> generation. But, um, you know, the people we work with who are younger, when I talk to our friends who are 18, 19, 20 years old, they have nothing to fucking lose at all. They look at the world and they go, I have no retirement. There's no future for the planet with climate change. The government's corrupt. The corporations have taken over. So there's no sense of like, I'm going to get this nice middle-class job, get the two-car garage, go on the vacations, enjoy retirement. There's no sense. That's like out the window. So the ones who've decided to engage politically, and obviously more and more are coming into the mix, and I think that's great. The people who have decided to engage politically in our experience here, even locally in a place that's not some progressive stronghold, they're pissed and they see that there's nothing to lose. Um, right. they, they don't have much to protect. The, the, the challenge we have, at least how we see it, is that it's not that these younger people don't understand how screwed up things are, but trying to convince them that if they do something that they can in fact make a change. That there is this sense among a lot of people that, hey, look, you know, no matter what we do, we keep getting shit on. You know, Obama was a disappointment. They screwed Bernie in 2016. We got Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in 2020. Why even bother? You know, it's like that kind of, and I think it's, it's understandable. I mean. Sure. Well, you, and, you know, and, and I, I think, you know, a true, a truism is that um, people do not organize until they think they have a chance of winning. Uh, you've got to have that kind of hope. Uh, in order to make it worth your while. Otherwise, why bother? Um, you know, people don't like jousting at windmills. They, what they like is having a clear uh, vision and strategy to achieve that. And, you know, unfortunately, very, very few people and very few leaders think strategically or have a vision. And I think that's just so important for the younger generation to develop um, a theory of change to to understand history, uh, to to understand what makes people move, not just what makes people move in a movement, but what makes people who have power move over. And uh, and so, um, you know, that I'm an educator, and I I truly believe that with that kind of an education, you have the tools to really change society. Unfortunately, they're not getting that education in our public schools, for sure. Right. Um, you know, they're getting business values, not, not, you know, collective values or social values. And so they have to, they have to do it themselves. And, the, or they have to, you know, like, find ways to get it. But I think that's just really important. And, and uh, you know, people are going to, people are going to move when they have both a combination of desperation and hope, I think. What do you make of, this is sort of a two-part question, but it's it's related both. One of the questions we've been asking is, or we, we put a lot of time into the Bernie Sanders effort. Um, our thinking was it made a lot of sense for multiple reasons. Obviously, first and foremost being it would be nice to have sort of a Band-Aid for four years or to try and push some progressive reforms, at least to give everybody a breather, to give mm -hmm. us a cushion to organize more um, to be in the position of pushing for policies instead of constantly opposing policies. For all of those reasons and many more, 
maybe most importantly because his campaign was bringing people into the mix who had never been politically involved, which we thought was, you know, tremendously useful. Okay, that project didn't work out the way we wanted it to. Pandemic hits. I think a lot of the questions we've been having with people or the conversations that we've been having in those conversations, one question continually comes up, and that is, what are what is the the primary vehicles for change? As a history uh, teacher, as as a scholar, as a labor scholar, do you still see that unions should play a central and and must play a central role? in any kind of progressive political change that we have in the country? I mean, if we look back at history, like somebody the other day had said, maybe we can push Harris and, and Biden to do these kinds of progressive reforms. I think back to history and I go to the 60s or the 30s and I say, well, what was the infrastructure that existed to make, to make that happen? That there was a communist party, there was a socialist party, there were organized unions, there were organized student groups, there were community organizations, people were organized within the Democratic Party. None of those, none of that infrastructure exists today. And so for me, it's not about like giving up and putting our hands up and saying, oh my God, it's just not the same. It's to say, well, what does that look like today? Where do you think, and I know that there's no necessary, like that there, nobody necessarily has the answer, but you know, as you see it, is it that we should be putting more and more time into rebuilding these unions? Is it that we should be doing all of the above electoral organizing within the Democratic Party? organizing outside of the Democratic Party, uh, campuses remain disorganized, even in our communities. You know, we're the only community group that exists in a city of 30,000 people. That's crazy to us. And we're not trying to bring everybody under our umbrella. Our thinking is, you want to be with us? Cool. If you want to start a group on the west side of the city, we'll help you start your own group and we can work together as a coalition. We're not trying to be in any way dogmatic or sectarian about it. We're just trying to think like, what, where should we be spending our limited time in such a crucial moment when so much is on the line and we want to be as strategic as possible while using our time? It, mm -hmm. That's a question I've asked 33 it's people on the program, question. so <laughs> <laughs> I don't expect you to have the answer. <laughs> yeah. I guess I'd say two things. One is there are certain tactical goals that we can win when we, when we get enough groups behind it. I'll give you an example, okay? I mean, I'm involved in uh, Missouri Jobs with Justice, and we have branches in Kansas City, St. Louis, Springfield, and Columbia right now. We're growing. Uh, we just passed Medicaid expansion, okay? Our state, Missouri, um, or their state, I live in Kansas, but whatever. Um, <laughs> um, you know, the, the Republicans have dominated the legislature for eons now, and uh, they um, refused to pass it because it was Obamacare. So uh, we finally figured out a strategy to get it on the ballot. And we managed to, and it wasn't just us, it was other organizations as well, a lot of the faith community, a lot of the medical community, all pooled their resources and their time to get it on the ballot and to win. You know, it didn't win by a whole lot. I think it was 53% to 47% or something like that. Uh, but a one. And now, you know, like 230,000 Missourians are going to have access to health care that they didn't have. Uh, you know, and that's a real progressive win. It's a reformist win, but it's it's something. It's significant. And it shows which side you're on, yep. which I think is important. Um, you know, even though a lot of people don't understand it, you know, they think it's still Obamacare. Oh, sure. my God. Right. 
Um, so, so that's one thing is, you know, figure out what battles you can win and go for them. Uh, but it takes a lot of resources to do that. I mean, we spent a year working on that, you know, same thing with repealing right to work, you know, which was the labor movement was at the center of, but a lot of allied organizations helped with that too. Took a long time, but it really energizes people. I mean, the thing is people get energized when they see that it's possible to win something and they get experience by doing it. And so those are great training grounds for building a movement. You know, you asked the question of uh, the whether the, you know, we should be putting our energy into reforming our unions or not. I don't know. I, I guess I take a case by case basis on that. Um, what What's really important is that we create a movement of the working class, whether it's unionized or in some other form. Um, the fact is that, you know, the vast majority of people are workers. They have economic power collectively. And, you know, the a Democratic Party is, is, you know, is corporate. The Democratic Party is not going to change unless it's forced to change. And if you look back at history, to me, you know, the great lesson is that we make major gains in this country only when we have mass movements, which they can't ignore because we're, cre we're creating too much trouble. Um, I mean, you know, I don't know if you've read the book that came out in the 60s called Poor People's Movements. To me, it's like a Bible. We just interviewed Francis Fox Piven a couple yeah, weeks ago. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant book. It's a brilliant book, and it really influenced me yeah. in terms of what, you know, a theory of change. Yeah. And um, I think that it's really important for people to understand that there's no easy way to do this. And without a movement, we're all lost. And so, you know, we, we have to be figuring out the nuts and bolts of movement building in order to do that. And a lot of it depends on, you know, conjunctures of forces that we don't have any control over. Like who would have expected COVID? Who would have expected Trump? Maybe we would have expected Trump if we'd been really paying attention uh, to the white backlash that really helped create him. But, um, but uh, the, fa the fact is that the, the uh, intersection of, uh, his incompetence and a, pa a pandemic, I think has moved a lot of people to activism. And now it's up to organizers to take advantage of that and steer it in, you know, to get those people and keep those people involved and, and, and give them a voice so that the, they can articulate where they want to go. Well, you sort of answered what my last question was going to be, which was, you know, what is your advice you have new wave of organizers and activists in the streets right now with the black lives matter protests uh you know we've got the election coming up in november um there's a lot of people who are coming to this for the first time there's a lot of people i've met just since 2015 and 2016 with the bernie campaign my friends who are now 23 24 25 years old they're just getting involved the only thing they know is what's happened in this country since 2016 beyond what yeah. they've read about history and so forth what and, I, and you you kind of already said this, but what would sort of be your your parting? I know a lot of my friends are depressed as hell today. Um, you know, they're I don't know if they expected somebody different than Kamala Harris, but they're looking at what no, or if they've forgotten because of the pandemic. But I think it's really hit people in the last twenty four hours. Okay, Who do you think they were going to get it's Joe Biden for him. No, I know Sergio's laughing yeah. behind the camera. <laughs> yeah, I I, really I agree with you. I agree with you one hundred percent, Judy. 
but I don't think that changes that there's this sense of like, damn, especially among these younger kids. So I cut them slack. I cut the younger cats mm-hmm. slack because it's like, they're just getting involved. They don't know. You know, the older people who are upset about Kamala Harris, I think, come on. Um, but these younger folks, you know, they're just getting involved. They right. see this and they're going, damn, I saw this in 2016. Well, okay, we're not changing this country from the top. We have to change this country from the bottom. And that's that, that's true anywhere in the world, okay? I mean, yeah, you can knock off a leader. That doesn't mean you're going to have this deep change. You know, we're get, you know, if we can knock off Trump, that's a victory. Yeah. But we're going to get Biden, for God's sake, you know? And, you know, like Biden is is clearly better than Trump, and I'm going to vote for Biden. Same Somebody same asked me yesterday, are you for Biden? I said, yeah. I, 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 and they said, are you going to vote? Are you going to tell people you're going to vote for him? And I said, yeah, damn right. I'm going to tell people I'm going to vote for him because four more years of Trump will be an absolute disaster for so many people will die yeah. because of that. And who knows what war he's going to start. And so And so, yeah, it's important to vote for Biden, I think. But don't have any illusions about who he is and what he represents. He's Wall Street. You know, he's a Wall Street Democrat. And, you know, and, and he, uh, you know, he basically, in my opinion, probably, you know, wants to, you know, take us back to the Obama era. Right. As if that's even possible, which it isn't. Right. You know, so, so uh, um, you know, I, I guess I, I would tell those young people who are disappointed with the Kamala Harris pick with the Joe Biden pick that, you know, this, this is the challenge we face and that we've always faced. This is nothing new, you know, but their activism can make a difference. And in fact, their activism is the only thing that's going to make a difference. That's exactly how I wanted to end this conversation. All right. (laughs) (laughs) That was perfect, Judy. We couldn't have written a better one than that. (laughs) Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was fun. Thank you. Yeah, maybe we could do it again in the future. Oh, who knows? Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay, good luck. Thank we'll you sure. very much. Uh-huh. All right, take care, Judy. You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at Park Media, Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.